of that hymn we sang, Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And I I just wonder, what are some of the sinking sands that we're building our lives on top of? What are some of those foundations that we're laying on sand that shifts? Is it, man, I'm going to have the richest life and the best life if I just exercise enough. And if my body looks the way I want it to look, man, that will be a solid rock I can build my life on. I don't know if this is the right pronunciation. If I go on the paleo diet, then my life is going to be full and it's going to be meaningful. If I do a cleanse, if I do a detox, life's going to be there. If I take this pill, this pill is going to make everything okay. This will be solid rock. If I have this house, if I have this money in my bank account, this will be solid ground I can build my life on. If I have these friends, if I have this wife, if I have this husband, then there's solid ground. I can build my life on this. I can, I can change and I can be all that I want to be if, if I just have the right thing. But our hope is built our hope of change, our hope that our life can be stable and immovable is built on nothing else but Jesus and the righteousness he applies to our life. There is hope that you can change. Not your circumstances, not the person that lays next to you at night, but that you can be changed. And that hope is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 as we look at it. Uh, We launched our series in Colossians last week looking at an overview and an introduction. And one of the things that we pointed out was that Colossians is written to a church that Paul never visited and Paul never started. Instead, one of his followers, one of the people that came to Christ under his ministry in Ephesus, went back home to his hometown and planted a church. We'll talk about him in a minute. But what has happened was some a false teaching had begun to infiltrate the church. Now, it hadn't taken them yet. They are still a stable church, but it was becoming worrisome to Epaphras, the, the church planter. And so he goes to Paul for both authority and for advice. And so this letter is written in response. You see, the Colossian false teaching we mentioned was this weird mixture of folk religion and Jewish mysticism with some laws and some ceremonies and some Jewish customs and then this rigid, rigid self-discipline called asceticism that they would just rigidly self-discipline themselves and deprive themselves in hopes of gaining this ecstatic experience or this vision or this encounter of angels. And so there's this false teaching offer something more, something mystic, something deep, something experienced. And Paul's answer, which is the theme of the book that we are looking at, was simple. Jesus is supreme over everything. He is supreme over salvation. He's supreme over your life. He's supreme over your experiences. He is better than your experiences. He is better than an experience and encounter you can have apart from him. In fact, the only true experience comes through experiencing him. He is supremely valuable and he is supreme over all things. And so Paul uh, lays that out in the book of Colossians. We're going to take our first step on the journey, Colossians 1, 3 through 8. And what we see is that Paul is thankful for this gospel that transforms people. Paul is thankful for this gospel that transforms people. And so that's the main point that we're looking at today. Be grateful for a gospel that transforms. Be grateful for a gospel that transforms. Every single thing that the gospel touches it changes. 
And that's a reason to give thanks. Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, how can we sit here? How can we stand and sing here of a cross and of Jesus and make much of ourselves at the same time? We just can't. And so, Father, rescue us from us. Rescue us from making much of ourselves and our disciplines and our ideas and our thoughts and our works and our efforts. And rescue us to make much of Jesus. That solid rock that life and eternity is built on, Jesus. The one who will command the highest praises of our lives, Jesus. Only Jesus. Nothing but Jesus. God, I pray, rescue my heart from everything else. Rescue my heart to Jesus. And do it for all of us, God. It's about Him. It's about you. God, help us to make it that way in our lives. Pour grace on top of grace on top of us. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So be grateful for a gospel that transforms. So look at the first step. By producing a genuine love for others that is rooted in hope. By producing a genuine love for others that is rooted in hope. Do you know the most dangerous thing facing the church today has nothing to do with our political climate? The most dangerous thing facing the church today has nothing to do with the tragic, sudden death of a Supreme Court justice yesterday and who gets to replace him. The most destructive and dangerous thing we are facing as a church has nothing to do with the secularization of America. The most dangerous thing we're facing as a church has nothing to do with homosexuality or homosexual marriage or gay marriage. It has nothing to do with um, prosperity gospel or anything else we want to blame. You want to know what the most dangerous thing facing the church today is? Gossip. Backbiting. Slander. Splitting churches over our preferences. Fighting for no reason among ourselves. Treating each other ugly. Refusing to reconcile with each other inside the body of Christ. That is the most dangerous thing facing the church today. You know how I know that? Because Jesus said so. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you vote the same way. If you get the culture to agree with you. If you have love for each other. Is it any wonder a world would run from the Jesus that is represented if we're fighting? And it is it any wonder that the world would run to Jesus if they see us crossing the barriers that divide them? Crossing the barriers that they put up to separate them, uh, the groups of people from each other. Would it be any wonder if uh, people would run to the Jesus that shows we can persevere in relationships that are hard. We can be kind when others are unkind. We can love when others don't love. That we can have a relationship of genuineness and intimacy and help and support. A, a, a relationship with other people that we aren't related to that puts on the work gloves of love and serves. Would it be any wonder that people might run to a Jesus that changes people like that? That, I believe, is why Jesus said love is the greatest. Faith, hope, and love, of which he's love is the greatest. That is why I believe Jesus said that's the defining mark of his disciples because that will put on display a radical gospel that changes people in deeper ways than the surface things that the world can change people. And so I encourage us to put on the work gloves of love 
and go serve each other. Go reconcile with each other. Do the nitty-gritty details of babysitting for each other. Do the nitty-gritty details of staying up all night talking with a friend that is hurting. Doing the nitty-gritty details of just sharing life together and the journey that we're on. Because the gospel transforms us to love each other. To love each other in radical ways that displays a glorious Jesus and a glorious gospel. So will we sacrifice for this kind of love? Will we serve each other with this kind of love? That's what the gospel summons up out of us. Let's look at it in the text. And so, as we read the text, we'll go through it all here. In verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it, From Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So let's take that and let's just go through the phases of what's happening. And so Paul is expressing this thanksgiving, which is very customary for him. He he opens up every letter, I believe, except for Galatians, something like this. I just want you to know this is what I'm praying for you. I'm thankful for you. Here's what I see in you. He even does that to Corinthian church that's an absolute disaster. And yet he finds something to affirm about him. And here he does the same thing. He offers this, this thanksgiving, and it actually brackets from 3 to 12. We give thanks, thanks. Um, and so he, he brackets it that way, and then he goes on and he's thankful for And it's one of these, like, I can relate to Paul because I think he's got a little ADD, and the Holy Spirit used that. Because he goes from this topic to this topic, from this theme to this theme, as he runs through, like, this really short sentence. Well, a long sentence. He likes to write long ones. And he's just all over the place, but it unites around this one central theme of the gospel and what the gospel does in people's lives. And so phase one, it's here's how I see the gospel working in your church. Faith, love, hope. I can tell the gospel is working because you love each other. I can tell the gospel is working. You're living in faith. I can tell the gospel is working because there's this hope that spurs true love. And then he goes from, here's what I see in growth, but to a transition. And here's what I see the gospel doing. It's doing it all over the world, but it's also doing it right where you are. And here's what else I see the gospel doing. It raises up and sends out service like servants like Epaphras. And so that's kind of the themes of the text that we're going to break down as we walk it out. And so let's start with that first one, these marks of growth that Paul sees in their lives. And so we give thanks, and he defines the God that he's giving thanks for, if you notice that. So we thank God. Which God? The God that we are related to through Jesus Christ, his son. That's the God we're focused on. That's the God that is being clearly defined for us in Colossians. That's the God we approach. And so we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And you notice how intimate and Paul is, and personal Paul is. In all of these churches, you think about the number of churches he started and the thousands of believers that represents. And there's this tender, personal touch from the big Apostle Paul. I'm praying for you specifically as a church, and here's what it looks like. So I want you to know I'm praying for you, and I want you to know when I pray, this is what I pray. And then he goes on, and the rest kind of frames out around this next statement. 
when he says, since we heard of. And so everything else is going to unpack. What did he hear and what is he commending and what is he thankful for? And so he starts out with this virtues of faith, hope, and love. And so I want, to know, I want you to know I thank God in prayer for you because I know of your faith in Christ Jesus. And as we read that, we might think, oh, saving faith. Yeah, they believe in Jesus. They're saved. That's something to be really thankful for. And it is. And it's included. But it's more than that. When he says, I am thankful for your faith in Christ, he's not saying I'm thankful just that you have put saving faith in Jesus. He's saying, I am thankful that you are living and active in your faith in Jesus Christ. You don't just believe Jesus one time salvation. You are actively living out your faith. That's the way this is actually constructed underneath the text. Is It's not just that objective belief in Jesus. You are actively living out this faith in Jesus. So here's what I thought of in my mind. It may work for you. It may not. At the fair and then at these tourist places, they have these huge little clear bubbles. And people actually get in them for some reason. And you know what they do when they get in them is they run around or, or they have them against each other and they run and they bump into each other and they wrestle with it. Or they put them on water. Why you would do this, I don't know. And why you would pay somebody really good money to do this, I don't know. But they do. And they get in this bubble and they run around on the water. When we're talking about faith in Christ, we're talking about walking into Christ and living and running and working around inside of Jesus. So I am thankful that you live in Jesus with active faith that touches everything you do. I'm thankful for your faith and the love that you have for all the saints. Here's a statement that I don't think is exaggeration. True faith will always display itself in sacrificial love for other people. True, genuine, saving, transforming faith in the gospel will always, always, always display itself in sacrificial love for other people. There's no way for it not to. Are you out there? Clap if you can hear me. Raise your hand. Okay, there we go. We're here. True saving faith, it will change us. It will produce a love in us. And so you think about some of the big statements Jesus made and the apostles make on love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang all the law and the prophets. We quoted this one earlier, John 13, 35. By this all will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, Colossians will start to end with a statement on Love, as you get over to chapter, um, to chapter 3, and it will talk about above all these, these virtues that he's just listed out, put on love. Because love is going to take all these other virtues and bind them together in perfect harmony. Love. So what is it? Is it love like I love the t-shirt? Is it love like I love bacon? I don't. I like sausage better. Forgive me. What is it? And the underlying word is, is the word you've probably heard before, agape. It is a God quality of love. So here's my stab at a definition. It is highly valuing another person that leads you to actively doing good to them. It is to value someone that's emotional attachment, that is valuing, that's relationship, that's importance, that leads to you actually doing good to them, actively doing good to them. And here's the thing about God's kind of love. It has zero to do with how lovely they are. 
It has zero to do whether they deserve it or don't deserve that love. How do I know that's true? Because not that you loved him, but he loved you and sent his son for you. God's kind of love doesn't put qualifications on the goodness of a person. God's qualifications of love don't put measures of, are they performing well enough for me to love them? God's love simply is placed on top of people. I value you. I will do good to you. I love you. And that's God's kind of love. And you can see why it takes a gospel to do that. Man, it is easy as all get out to love my kids functionally when they are obeying me and they're not griping with each other and they're being sweet and kind. Lost people do that great. It's easy for me to love my friends when they're doing what I want to do and everything's easy and we agree and we get along. Everybody does that. Lost people do that. But a gospel kind of love erases all those qualifications and simply compels a love that is produced by the work of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. That's God's kind of love. And that's the kind of love Paul sees. And notice who he sees it. Your love for all the saints. It's not the love for the saints that, you know, on this side of the church, because I like them, not them. It's not the love that says, well, you know what, I like the people that kind of hit the same economic status as me. It's not the kind of love that says we're going to divide out and have all of these churches based on if you've got the right age, the right demographic, the right ethnicity. We're going to just separate the churches. God's kind of love tears all that aside. And it says you love all the saints. You love the older saints. You love the younger saints. You love the every different ethnicity saint. You love the rich saints. You love the poor saints. And I see the gospel working and maturing and deepening you. How? Because I see this gospel love in your church. And I see people that would have been enemies if it weren't for the gospel. And I see people that used to divide from each other that are together because of the gospel. And so I know the gospel's working. Faith. Love. Sacrificial, serving, work, glove kind of love. No, don't forget, it's both valuing people and honoring them, but it is also serving them. It is also doing good to them. Your wife's not going to believe you love her if you brought her a card on Valentine's Day and hadn't talked to her since last one or haven't done anything for her since the last one. Probably not going to mean much that she got a card and roses that day. But if you actively love her Week by week and day by day, or him, week by week and day by day, it can be a meaningful expression, right? Love puts on work gloves, or it's not love. And then hope. Notice hope both ends a section, and in this case it's unique. You love each other and you believe actively faith Jesus because of, rooted in the hope of the gospel. Do you see that? Because of the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. And so what is this? It's not the simple emotion of hope. It is a steadfast here and now living out like the promises of God are true. It is the living today, here and now, nitty-gritty, whatever I face this week, like all the rich promises of God for eternity, especially found in Christ, are true. And I can live differently today because I know eternity is true. I can live differently today because I know Christ in me is true. I can live differently today because I have this hope, this investment in heaven that is promised and guaranteed by God, so it changes me today. You have faith and you have love. Why? Because you have this guarantee of a hopeful future in the gospel. And that's how you can love and that's how you can trust and that's how you can persevere when you want to walk away. 
faith, hope, and love, and then it transitions also from there. But I want you to think about this. As you look at your life, is there this active gospel faith? Not just I believed in him, but today, is there a sense of actively believing and actively living like we believe? You know how you'll find the answer to that question? Do you love people? Do you sacrifice for people? Do you serve people that don't deserve it? Do you love people that aren't just like you in natural connections? Are you actively loving people? That's a sure mark that the gospel is producing fruit in our lives. So by producing a genuine love for others that's rooted in hope. Second, by reaching us and others, then maturing us in God's grace. By reaching us and others, and then maturing us in God's grace. So let me use a more graphic illustration than I usually do, just because I think it warrants it. So about 71 years ago, take or give, the Allied powers are beginning to destroy the Nazis, are beginning to win the war against the Nazis. And you've got U.S. and France and Britain coming from the east across, and you've got Russia coming from... I'm sorry, from the west across and the east. And so they're meeting in the middle. And in January, the Russians come into a town that you may have heard of called Auschwitz. And they come up to a place with barbed wire. And they do it very reluctantly. Because they don't know, are there guards there? They don't know if there's resistance there. They don't know what it is. But what they see on the other side of this barbed wire is 7,000 of the sickest, most infirmed, most unable to travel because the rest they had death-marked back towards Germany of the mostly Jewish prisoners of war, concentration camp victims. And they see these sunken eyes and these emaciated bodies and these torture marks all over them. These hollow eyes staring at them through the barbed wire. And finally, when everybody realizes what's happening, this army ain't coming to kill them and they aren't a danger. There is this, a guy from the, the experience who's done some speaking events said it this way, there was a grim sense of relief. Relief that they were being liberated from this hell. And that's the word he used. And there was also in our sense a, a, a good feeling because we had done this good deed of liberating them from hell. Now think about that as we talk about the gospel and its impact. We take good news to starving people, but they don't know they're starving. Don't think they're out here saying, man, I am really tortured and jacked up by the choices I've made in life. I really wish somebody would come tell me. They're not. They have somehow found a way to make it okay to live the way they live, but it's tortured. It's tortured. And it's starvation at its highest and unless the gospel is brought to them and throws open the prison gates and grabs them and pulls them out and nurtures them back to health there's no hope and so i want you to know that the gospel is this radical advancing army that nothing can stop and it's not going to clean people and it's not going to nice people and it's not going to good people even if they look that way more than others It is going to starving, tortured souls that don't know they're starving and tortured to rescue them. To rescue them. 
You are part of an advancing army that the gates of hell itself will not prevail against. You are part of an advancing army that will bear fruit wherever it goes and it will increase. You are part of an advancing army. And I want you to see that now as we go to the text in verse, the, the second part of verse 5 and following. And so, it, it, uh, it's bearing... Uh, what, where am I? Okay, I can't see. That's a six. Sorry. Of this, this hope that we just talked about, of this hope you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, and it has come to you as it indeed has in all the world, and it's bearing forth fruit, and it's increasing. And so we see this movement here. We see the hope that, that spurs love is the hope that's rooted where? In the gospel. This word of truth came to you, and it produced hope in you, which produced faith and love in you. And so you have got this, this gospel that has come to you. And then notice there's three movements of the gospel here. The gospel has come to the whole world. Now this is Paul being... Not exaggerating, but a little bit of holy exaggeration mixed with some prophetic faith. The gospel is going to all the world. God promised it, and so I'm going to speak like it's true. The gospel has gone into the whole world, and it's borne fruit, and it's increasing. I see by faith that happening. So it's gone in the whole world. And why he says that, I think, because he's going to then transition to phase two, it's done that among you, Colossians. You've witnessed the impact of the gospel. You've been matured in the gospel. And then it's going to go to the sending power of the gospel where Epaphras comes and he plants the church there. So three movements, world, Colossians, sending of Epaphras. But why I think he mentions in the whole world is because he's interacting with a false teaching that's very localized. It's like this townsfolk religion. We um, go to Peru again a couple times a year. And in that village, and in every village, there's this weird mixture of Catholicism and spiritist beliefs and animist beliefs. And so it's all, each of them would kind of shake up a group of beliefs, and then it would come out in their, in their active living and speaking. And each village would have a little different, and each village has its own patron saint. And they have a statue to this saint, and every time you come in and out of the village... And that's what he's talking about here. He's combating a localized religion with localized beliefs, and he's saying there is a gospel that impacts the whole world. It's not limited to this region. It's not limited to this folk system. It touches the world. And you know it's true because it's touched you. It's impacted you. So he's, he's reminding them, go back to this gospel. Go back to this hope. Go back to this foundation. It's gone into all the world. And it also is among you. And what's it doing? bearing fruit, I would call that multiplying, and it's increasing, I would call that maturing. And why I use those words is if you look forward to verse 10, he uses the exact same words. It's bearing fruit in your good works, and you're increasing in the knowledge of God. That is, you're maturing and deepening in your understanding and experience of God. And so I'm going to import that meaning backwards because I think it's fit, but in the gospel context, the gospel is bearing fruit. That is, it's saving people. And when it saves people, it uses those people to bring it to others and save them and bring it to others and save them and bring it to others and save them so that the city of Colossae has this strong Christian voice and strong Christian presence because the gospel has multiplied throughout it. Every alive tree, fruit tree, grows up and if it is healthy, it produces fruit. It multiplies. And you can take that fruit and plant another tree and it will grow up at some point and it will bear fruit. It multiplies. 
And so how do we get an orchard? We plant dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of orange trees. And they, if we get them healthy, fruit, they multiply. But they can only multiply if they have matured. And so the gospel doesn't just save people. The gospel roots people down into it so that they get the strong, growing, healthy, thick tree that can multiply itself. Is the gospel doing that in your life? Is it bearing fruit from your life into others? Is it maturing you? See, one of the struggles we have in the church today is we have permanent students. But the gospel doesn't let us do that, does it? We have people who are professional students of the Bible. And we store up the knowledge. And we store up the maturity. And we store up all these life-giving sap or, or nourish, uh, fertilizers and nutrients that come into our life through the word and through the worship and the gathering and the singing and the teaching and the preaching and the reading. And we store it up inside of us. But at some point it has to break the dam of our lives and flow outward. The gospel multiplies and the gospel matures. It bears fruit and it increases. And so I just want to challenge you as I challenge myself. At what stage of the gospel are you? Are you being a disciple, meaning you're being discipled? Or are you at a place it's time to transition to making disciples? Because those are the only two categories of Christians that God is letting us be. Disciple, be one. Disciple, make one. And if we're truly maturing, if we're truly being nourished in this transforming gospel, at some point, fruit's going to come out. It's going to multiply. We don't get to be permanent students of it. We bear fruit. And so it reaches us, and it reaches others, and it matures them. Look at the last description of the gospel he has in that, that section. You heard it, and you understood the grace of God in truth. How did they get the gospel? Somebody told it to them. Epaphras, as we're going to find out in a second. Somebody opened their mouth so that they could hear it. And if you notice the vehicle, look at this. The grace of God in truth. How did it get to them? Somebody shared truth. And then grace operated to bring them in. The grace of God will work inside the gospel being proclaimed. Sharing and serving. This is God's path, right? This is how Colossae got impacted by the gospel. This is how the Western world got impacted by the gospel. This is how the gospel sits in America today. Because it didn't start here. It's because somebody heard it. Somebody was changed by it. Somebody was sent by it. Somebody shared it. Somebody else heard it. Somebody else grew in it. Somebody else was sent by it. Somebody else shared it. And on and on and on for 2,000 years. And so the question is, are we growing roots that are going to produce fruit? Or is it time to start actively pursuing fruit? There's only two categories. Last step. It produces this love in us. It spreads this gospel out that both multiplies and matures us. And then the last step, by sending us out to share with and to serve others. By sending us out to share with and to serve others. And so, here's the statement I think that I will make on that. If you are saved, you are sent. If you are saved, you are sent. 
As the Father has sent me, Jesus said, so send I you. And that is this cycle of the gospel that works and multiplies. Saved, sent, saved, matured, sent, saved, matured, sent, saved, matured, sent. Not just the Chris Fowlers of the world, not just the Epaphrases of the world, every believer in the world. That's God's plan. There's no other plan. There's no other system. There's no shortcut. There is you and me walking around in life as gospel ambassadors. As people transformed by this radical grace, loving each other and extending to others this gospel. That's it. Let's look at it as we look at Epaphras. I want to see the point, and then I want to broaden the point out to us. And so, you learned it from Epaphras. Epaphras planted this church. I want you to think about these numbers. Don't trip out if you're not a history person. About 57 A.D., Epaphras hears Paul teach, probably in the school of Tyrrhenius, in Ephesus. And he's saved. The grace of God captures his life, and he's transformed by a gospel. And a whopping year and a half later, a whopping year and a half later, a whopping, not 10 years, not 20 years, not 40 years under Paul, a year and a half later, Paul moves on and Epaphras goes home. And as soon as he gets home, what does he do? The gospel isn't in Colossae. I guess I better share it. The gospel doesn't have a church in Colossae. I guess I better plant a church. And so he shares the gospel and plants a church and shares the gospel and plants a church and shares the gospel and plants a church. And then a whopping three years later, there's an established church that already is rooted and grounded and maturing in this gospel. The work of God has gathered a group of people and saved a group of people and made them stand in good order and firm and made them love each other despite not having any of this book that we get to read. Planted a church there. Three years. Some layman that happened to hear Jesus or hear Paul talk about Jesus while he walked by the city of of Ephesus. They didn't even live in. And there's a church because of that. And listen to the way Paul describes him because it's very unique. I, I can only find one other place where he calls somebody this. He is a beloved fellow slave. Only one other place. One of all the people that Paul lists out in his ministry and in his letters. This and one other is the only time they get this high commendation. He is a fellow slave. We have the same master. We are loved by the same God, serve the same God, but we serve him to the level of slave of this good master Jesus together, fellow servants. And he is a faithful minister, not of Colossae, of Christ. He is a faithful minister of Christ on behalf of the people of Colossae. You see, leaders and disciple makers and pastors, we don't serve you. We serve Jesus, and our means of serving Jesus is to serve each other. And our means of serving Jesus is discipling each other. And our means of serving Jesus is to share with others. Faithful servant. And so I want us to just think for one second. There is probably over a thousand years of Christ following sitting in this room today. Possibly a couple of thousand of years of Christ following sitting in this church today. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sermons and Sunday school lessons and personal devotional readings and personal reading of the word. Can you just imagine a dam getting pushed up against? Up against. Read Colossians this week. Read James this week. Heard a sermon on Colossians this week. Heard Sunday school this week. 
Oh, man, sang about a glorious grace this week. At some point, it's got to break. At some point, it's got to break. And it's got to flood out of these doors. And it has got to flood the city of Statesboro. And it's got to flood the dark corners of the earth. At some point, all these thousands of years of investment have to be poured back into a community that needs Jesus. It has to be poured back into a community to raise up matured disciples of Jesus. It has to be poured back out into a community that as it saves and matures, resends people back into this community. And then it does the same thing as it saves and it matures and sends them out all over the globe. Like we've already got down payments of throughout Asia, East Asia and South Asia. We've already got down payments of them in Peru and other places that are being served. We've already got down payments of this. But it's time for the dam to break. A thousand years of teaching is enough. It's time to go. We can't say, I don't know how to do it. We can't say, I don't know what to share. We can't say, okay, some other time, some other person. Chris, what's your phone number again so I can give it to them? Actively letting the dam break of all that God has poured into us so that it can be poured back into other people. We talk a lot about who is your one. Because it's easy to look at Statesboro in the world and say, uh, let's turn on the TV. I can't do anything about that. One. Who's one person you need to intentionally pursue with the gospel of Jesus by serving and sharing? One person. The world has changed one person at a time. What if every single one of us took two people and made them disciple makers in five years? The world would be changed in a generation. That's how multiplication works. Who's your one? Who's your one that you're connected to for growth and change? Your one that you're encouraging and equipping and multiplying through. That's why we talk about the one. We want to localize it, personalize it, make it a face. Because if you see the face, you'll feel the burden for that face. And maybe that'll break the dam open of your life to pour out all that's inside you into someone else. That's what the gospel does. It changes us and makes us love each other. Radical, world-confusing love. It saves us and it matures us. But it doesn't stop at maturing us. It never stops at maturing us. It sends us. Just like Epaphras, many Epaphrases all over Statesboro. Some of us real Epaphrases that go out of Statesboro with the gospel. That's what it does. It changes us to love. It changes us to maturity and it sends us back into the world. Let's talk about a few practical things as we close. First, I would encourage you, and this is on the back of your bulletin, do a love check of your life. And I think one way we look at our love, the the quality, the gospel quality of our love, is we look at, do I love people that aren't exactly like me? Do I love people that are different economic status? Do I love people that are different personalities? Do I love people that are of different uh, racial groups? Do I love them? Does the gospel erase what would divide us? How's my love doing? But another mark of love is it's this active sacrificial service. Does gospel love show up in the way you love your wife or the way you love your husband? Would you say, man, the gospel is shown off because I love even when the other person's not at their best. I serve instead of comforting myself and sitting on my couch and vegging out. I serve each other. I'm gentle. I'm patient. I'm humble. I'm kind. I'm gracious with each other. I don't bear a record of wrongs. 
Maybe you need a revival of gospel love in your marriage. How well do you love your friends? Do you sacrifice to help them grow and change? I don't mean do you hang out together and enjoy it. I mean do you sacrifice to actively do good in their lives to help them see and love Jesus better and let them help you see and love Jesus better? Is there a need of a gospel love, a revival of gospel love in your friendships? Is there a need of revival of gospel love? Where does it need come from? And so it's both in breaking down barriers with different people, but it's also pushing me outside of what I'm comfortable with and pushing me outside of my little confines of my little world and my little schedule to go serve other people and to go sacrifice for other people and to go love in very practical, tangible ways the people around me. How's your love life? How is your gospel love? Second evaluation, do a discipleship check. Which category are you in? I need to be a disciple, meaning there's some intentional growth I need to work on, not just sit back and listen. I need to actively work on some areas of my growth. Or is it time to start walking, walking towards another person to help them grow and change while them continuing to help you grow and change? Mutual. Be one, make one. Where are you in that process? Are there areas where you see active faith and active following of Jesus working in your life? Or have you just been storing up and learning but not really applying and doing? Just let the gospel draw you back out of that protective shell. Let the gospel draw you back out of that routine or that complacency. And the last step is do a gospel check. Do you know how to share your faith? It's not, it's not complicated. A cool technique isn't what you need. You need a holy God who created the world and owns the rights to every people. Met a sinful world that has rebelled against him. And they are sinners by their nature and they are sinners by their choices. And since they could not get to God, God sent his son who lived a perfect life they couldn't live and he died on a cross for their sins and he rose again from the dead on the third day and invite them to respond in repentance and faith. That is, they turn away, do a 180, turn from me, my ways, my rules, my law, it's about me, to God. And they put their life on top of Jesus to save them. It's not that complicated. When was the last time you shared your faith? When was the last time I shared my faith? It's a question we've got to confront ourselves with from time to time. Because it would be so tragic to end a 40-year life in church and to look back and there was not one person that heard the gospel uttered out of your lips or my lips. Let's do a love check. Do we love people sacrificially? Let's do a discipleship check. Am I following? Am I doing? Am I obeying the grace of God? And let's do a gospel check. Am I allowing myself to be sent to where I work and sent to where I go to school and sent to where I I play and sent to where I live? There's a rich gospel of grace that saves people, matures people, and sends people back to the harvest. Let's pray. Father... In the name of Jesus, we are thankful that there is grace. There's not condemnation, Father. There's grace. And so, Father, let that grace wash over us in this moment so that we would not allow guilt and condemnation to sink us, but we would allow grace to infuse us with a fresh passion to love people. That grace would give us a fresh passion to, to serve other people and to share with other people and to deepen other people and allow them access to us that we might be changed as well. Father, I pray whatever 
stage of this process we are in individually or as a church that you would put that final wave up against the dam and break it loose. Break it loose to maturity. Break it loose to maturing others. Break it loose to sent out to love other people well and to share the gospel with them. Pray for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we come to our time of invitation...